I'm Daria Rose, and this is The Foodist Podcast, where real people use real food to get healthy and lose weight without dieting. Hello, and welcome to The Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. Today, I am speaking with Maria, who wanted to share her success story because she has overcome quite a lot in her health style. Starting at a very young age, she dealt with an alcoholic and emotionally abusive mother and later in life developed binge eating uh, disorder and had, had some other issues as well as severe depression for a very long time. And it was obviously very, very difficult for her and, and her story is very powerful. What's amazing is the psychological work that she has done to overcome these things. Not that she's 100% cured of everything, but she is happy and she has stopped binging for years and is very, as you can imagine, very thrilled to have gotten to where she is now. And there was a time when she didn't know if that was possible. It's really powerful to hear her share this and the lessons she's learned along the way. So I, I know that you will enjoy this episode, no matter where you're coming from. It's just it's just a very powerful story. But also, if you have any of these issues, if you have depression or you you have a binge issue that is feels impossible or very very difficult, and you're ready to throw in the towel, this is an episode you should definitely definitely listen to. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the show. Hi, Daria. How are you doing? I am great. It is really hot in San Francisco right now. <laughs> like really stinking hot and it's been hot for days and it's the weirdest thing ever. I, I lived here. I mean, I took a couple of years off in New York, but I, I've pretty much lived here for 20 years and it's never been like this. It's so weird. So to anyone who can hear the background noise on the street, it's because my window's open. <laughs> Because it has to be because I'm dying. <laughs> Poor you. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty hot in. Uh, I'm in Cambridge in the UK, and it's fairly warm, but not as hot as it sounds in San Francisco. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's pretty miserable. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to share your story on the show. I am really looking forward to talking to you. It sounds like your success story, and it sounds like you've overcome something that is very difficult and very emotional and actually something that I know that a lot of readers and listeners of the show struggle with. So I have, I'm going to have so many questions for you, but I would love you to start at the beginning and sort of let, talk about how you got started and how you made the evolution and changed over the last few years. I'll set the scene for you where I was originally. And so this was in Christmas back in 2011 and I was at home at my my mom's house and I had just binged so much food it was crazy I was also incredibly depressed and I had been depressed for a, about 15 years and at the time I was also in an abusive relationship with a guy so all of this came to a head when I was just sitting in the bedroom of my in my childhood bedroom in my mom's house. And I was just thinking, I'm going to kill myself. That This is it. 
And that was obviously an incredibly difficult moment for me. Wow. It sounds like it is something that sort of had built up over many, many years and had come to a head. Yeah, definitely. And you coped with it through food. Yes. So I decided in that moment that I was going to put all of my effort into changing my life or I was going to kill myself. It was really that simple for me because I knew I couldn't go on living like that. So after Christmas, I decided everything needed to change and I needed to put all of my energy in. So I did what any great researcher does and I hit the library hard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I went to bookstores and the library and I was trying to read and research everything about overcoming depression, overcoming binge eating and and what just what on earth to do with my life and it was when I was in a bookstore in the town I, I was living in and I just talked to a guy there who was who was working there and he recommended the book Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn and that book was a completely eye-opening and life-changing book for me actually because I'd kind of heard of mindfulness before but I never really knew what it was and reading this book, which is in it, he talks about how he he's a doctor and he uses mindfulness-based stress reduction to reduce the symptoms in people who have chronic physical pain. And I found that just amazing. If, if someone in physical pain could be made or to be, have their symptoms eased, then could this, could this work for me as well in such emotional pain? And one of the things in the book said that really struck me was as long as you're, you're breathing, there is more right with you than wrong with you. So of all of the things I thought that my body, you know, I, I, I hated my body. I, that's part of the reason I was binge eating is because I had restricted my food intake really hard because I hated the way I looked. And one of the things I realized was that actually there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with my body. And it does so much for me. It, it's, you know, my heart is beating. My stomach is digesting all of this food. I'm throwing down it and I'm here and I'm breathing. And there is no moment in and of itself that is unendurable. So it was through reading that book that I became more and more interested in mindfulness and that allowed me to separate my thoughts from kind of this automatic pilot I was in I guess so it made me realize that thoughts are not facts that they come and go and they're not necessarily the truth of the matter and they also can be fleeting I have a question. Yes. My first question is was it obvious to you that there was a link between the depression and how you felt about your body? Was that true? That is an interesting question. I'm not sure if that's true. Okay. It certainly wasn't obvious to me at the time because all I had known since I was a kid was that life was not fun. Um, Life was a struggle. And I know there's a few traumatic events in my childhood. So by the way, my mum is an alcoholic. And there are a few things that she said to me as a child 
that made me realize or, or made me believe, should I say, that I was not, I guess, worthy of love. Which is the worst possible state of mind. Absolutely. That's the worst possible. And you, you, you were indoctrinated with that before you were even old enough to know that. Yeah. So, for example, and one of, so this is one of the traumatic events that I, I could never used to be, be able to think about. But I'm, you know, I'm going to share it with you now. So <laughs> one of the things was I was sitting on the staircase and my mom would go out all of the time and get drunk. And I was sitting on the stairs and I asked her, I must have been about six years old by this point, And I asked her, mom, why do you always go out? And she said, to get away from you and then slammed the door in my face and left the house. Wow. And I remember sitting there thinking, she's going to come back in a second. She's going to walk through the door and tell me she didn't mean that. But she never came back through that door. Uh, well, not for many hours. And by that time, the damage had, had already been done. And there was another scenario, another event where I remember I had a headache at one point and she poured some salts into a glass of water and told me to drink it. And I said, you know, I was old enough by that point to kind of question it. I was like, that's salt water though. Are you, are you sure? She said, yeah, drink it. So I drank it and then I was immediately spluttering, gagging, trying to hold back the vomit. And she just laughed right at me and said, at least you won't complain about the headache anymore. Wow. So from pretty early on, I, I just thought that everything in the world was my fault because I've kind of been told that this problem my mum had was my fault. So when you're a kid, you kind of think the whole, the whole world is, <laughs> revolves around you kind of thing. You know, you relate right, everything right. to yourself. So from there, I kind of thought that, everything in the world was my fault. And I really did feel the weight of everybody's pain and suffering in the entire world on my own shoulders. And that was incredibly hard and a huge burden to carry. Especially as a small child. Yeah. And I, mm. and I grew up still believing for so many years that I was the cause of suffering. And even when I could intellectualize that I obviously didn't cause people to starve in third world countries. When I was old enough to realize that, I still blamed myself for other just random suffering and pain in the world. And I also held people's pain. I, I thought about how much they would suffer and I felt bad. Mm. Wow. What a burden. Yeah. So to answer your initial question, I don't think I did think it was to do with my body, but I definitely mm -hmm. thought that I was the cause of a lot of suffering and I was never confident in my own, in my own body. I was basically, I thought I was burdening the whole world. Okay. So my other question is similar or sort of on when you read the book, the it was full catastrophe living. 
Yeah, that's it. When you read that, I mean, it sounds like a remarkable change to go from I'm the cause of all the suffering in the world and nothing about me is right to my body is perfectly fine as long as I'm breathing. How were you able to make that leap? I mean, it, it's one thing for you, for somebody to say that to you, but how were you able to internalize that as a truth, especially given that for so long you believed otherwise? That's a great question. I think it's the statement you said was possibly a simplification of the long, lengthy, lengthy process that I went through. So between the age when I had those sort of childhood traumas until the age when I read that book, that was a time span of about 20 years, maybe a bit less, 18 years or so. So by that point, I, ha- I, I didn't believe that I was the cause of everyone's suffering, but I did basically hate myself. I think that at this point I was, when I was reading the book, I was focused a lot on binge eating and how I didn't trust my body. And at that point I did hate my body because, because I was also in this abusive relationship at that time where he, the guy would really be, he would encourage me to be thin. Let's put it that way. So I, I had been on like extreme dieting and extreme high intensity exercise. And that's then what led to the binge eating. I see. So I think while I was reading the book, it was kind of about my body at that point. It was like, I don't trust my body anymore. And I was in total control of my food. And now I'm completely out of control and I don't know what's going on. And I was like, I guess I just felt out of control. And I felt that my somehow my body was to blame or in some way. Was he the one who put that message on you that that your body needed to look a certain way? Did you have that before him or did he just, so did he make, just make something worse that was already there or did he just bring something into focus or did he cause it from scratch? I'm just curious about that. It's funny because I talked to a lot of women and, uh, you know, so many people, so many women, especially they seem to be going on diets from like age three or something. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I never had that. I never, I never thought, because I was always into sports. I was always very active and I, I did a lot of sport. I played a lot of games. I was basically raised by my two older brothers. So I was always competing with them. I never really saw myself as this thing that needed to be thin because I was already like smaller than my bigger brothers. I'm naturally quite a small person anyway. So I never felt like I needed to go on a diet. I never, I never wore makeup. I never read magazine like glossy magazines i i was never into that into fashion or anything like that i never saw any of that but when i started going out with this guy i started doing karate pretty seriously he was really into karate as well and other martial arts and he kind of scared me a bit actually um (laughs) but when i got into that i was super serious about it so i've always been as i said quite sporty but I took it really seriously from then on. He broke my toe at one point and that made me unable to fight in karate. So I, so I started, I, I kind of decided 
to get into the best shape of my life. If I couldn't do karate, I was going to find a way around it. So I started doing in high intensity interval training by myself, super intense every single day without fail. So I guess it was his, the, the relationship with him that made me feel that way. And then his encouragement of me to get thin and skinny. Yeah, he encouraged it basically. And I don't seem, I don't really remember before then needing to look a different way. Okay. So maybe when you read the book, there was a realization that that wasn't really as important as maybe you thought it was for that period of time. Yeah, maybe that is the case. But I still, for many, many years afterwards, you know, I still wanted a six pack and I kind of thought that was super cool. And, the way I wanted to look. Yes, there was another, there was definitely some element of you enjoying it as well. Yeah, definitely, 100%. And then through reading about mindfulness and sort of getting down, digging for a a solution to your depressive issues, you came to realize that your body was on your team, it sounds like. Well, it's funny because I, so I had another like mind blowing moment so I say when I was I was walking up so during this whole time pretty much after the Christmas that I decided to change my life around I was doing my PhD and I was walking up the hill one day to campus and things were going okay in my head I was like this is manageable everything's okay and then suddenly I felt awful and there were loads of negative thoughts going through my head like you know I'm useless, I'm worthless, and just every other kind of horrible thought going through my head. And I just learned about all this mindfulness stuff, and I learned about this body scan. So you kind of just, with your mind, you just scan through every part of your body and feel it and see what's going on. So I was walking up the hill, and I'm like, okay, I'll do this body scan. Did the body scan, and I, you know what I realized? I realized that I was just too hot. <laughs> I was wearing a big coat and I was walking up the hill and my body was too hot. And wow. <laughs> this blew my and mind. And your brain interpreted it as I'm the worst. Exactly. This is my fault. Yeah. So that just, that just highlighted to me how disconnected I was from my body. Like my, Interesting. My mind and my body were just almost like two different entities. So like your your body can only, it doesn't speak the language of English, right? It, it can only communicate to you how it, in the ways it knows how. So through pain, anxiety, discomfort. And if you can't listen to those signals, you're not going to be able to act in a way that's best, best for you. Does that make sense? It makes 100% sense. That didn't make sense, though. <laughs> yes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I had similar experiences, actually, when I did my meditation retreat that I did a couple of years ago. I did a 10-day mm. silent meditation retreat. And, I, yeah, I had an experience where, you know, I was really focused for, like, 10 days on listening to my, just watching my thoughts and my emotions and my body yeah. and trying not to judge them and just trying to see what was going on there and just, because, you know, 10 days of silence, you can really do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no other distraction. And I remember there was this incident where 
<laughs> it's ridiculous. It's it's like this is really embarrassing actually. Um, but it's it reminds me of this story that you just told. Uh I was doing a walking meditation. We just basically meditated all day and we were in the walking meditation period and I decided to do it outside because it was a nice morning. And I was walking along and doing my meditation and a bird, like a sparrow of some sort, like flew by my face, like within a few <laughs> feet of my face, very rapidly. And it was shocking, right? And I remember thinking, I remember being like, oh, what is my feelings and thoughts about the bird? You know, what just happened? <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, I probably am very impressed with the bird because it's so fast and so nimble in the air or something like that. I just like made up a story. Like my brain just made up a story. And then I was like, and then I just kept walking and, and kept, and then I realized like it hit me a few seconds later. I was like, that is not at all what I thought. <laughs> That's just what I thought I might have thought. <laughs> and what, what actually happened was I was just scared. Like I just had a, I had a, you know, a, an adrenaline type startle reaction and, and then it went away. And then I tried to think of a reason to have an opinion about the bird. And, and I, and I, in that moment, I just realized how full of it my thoughts can be. <laughs> Kind of like what you were saying, like, yeah, it just made up a story about why I had a, a reaction. And in my brain, it was like, oh, I was impressed by the bird. But no, I was just like f- temporarily frightened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly and, yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and then w- when you realize that your brain is capable of that and that it does it all the time. Actually, there's lots of really cool neuroscience that describes why your brain does this. Your, br- your brain is like a story generating machine. And if anybody's interested or doesn't quite believe that your brain is full of it yet, your thoughts are full of it, I recommend a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Oh, that's brilliant. Because he talks of, yeah, because he talks about people who actually like certain tumors in certain areas of your brain or or certain neurological disorders can highlight this sort of disconnect between your, the story generating part of your brain and your conscious mind versus what's actually going on in the world and how they can totally be disconnected <laughs> and you could not realize it at all. And, and, it, and, you know, the examples in the book are obviously very extreme because they are neurological. You know, it's like if you have a tumor in yeah. <laughs> part of your brain, there's, there's, yeah. there's a serious issue there. But all of our brains do this to some extent. If we don't have, you know, we just make up the best story we can think of, you know, and our, our brains are okay at it, but they're certainly not perfect at it. And, and this is, and I love that you, and mindfulness teaches you this too, by the way, because you can start to see it in real time. But I love that you are able to take the practice and recognize it, it happening in your pain, you know, as, like, as you're suffering and recognize that probably a lot of your suffering is due to stories like that, that your brain is telling you that aren't necessarily true. You don't, you aren't the worst. You're just warm. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Like the, your brain's trying to make sense of the world the only way it kind of knows how. And exactly. I was so disconnected from my body. I think in some ways I feel like now, because I was trying to protect myself, I guess, that I've, I kind of shut my body down because I've been through various traumas and like even extreme dieting. I think it's a form of trauma as well, like a nutritional trauma. Yeah. Um, so I was basically very closed off from anything that was happening in my body to protect myself. So I can't remember where we were in the story. 
<laughs> That's a really good insight. That's a really good insight. Um, well, I had, yeah, I had asked you, I had interrupted you and asked you how you made the connection. Cause it just seemed like a, there was more to the story than I just realized that my body was helpful because I think that that jump is very hard for a lot of people. And so I wanted to dig in a little bit how you personally got there. Yeah. So I think that story of walking up the hill was definitely a, a big insight to me that maybe my body isn't the enemy and maybe I'm just not listening hard enough to the messages it's trying to send me. And I think, awesome. yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge realization really. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think being, doing the, the body scan was really helpful to me because I, I did realize that I hadn't been in, in my body before. I was always in my head. And to me, it felt like I had found this other being almost mm. that I just neglected my whole life pretty much. Wow. Yeah, that's really profound. And now, like, these days, I totally see how... I, I don't even know how, what I was doing before because now I totally see that if, if my body doesn't feel good, if I'm not moving it, then I feel bad. Um, and it's like the, there's the um, famous experiment where they get people to hold their hold a pencil in between their teeth to mm -hmm. to make them smile. Um, mm -hmm. So you feel happier if you have this pencil in between your teeth. Yeah, this is a great point. And actually, this is also something that I had a deep realization about at my meditation retreat. Yeah, <laughs> I love how deep we're going here. <laughs> So, yeah, one of the things I realized is that one of the assumptions I think a lot of humans make, and myself included, which is crazy because even as a neuroscientist, even knowing that experiment, yeah. I, I always just had this weird assumption. I don't think I actually articulated it to myself, but I just sort of believed that if that my body was a reflection of what was going on inside. So if I was sad, I would slump my shoulders or if I was happy, I would laugh. And that it was like a sort of one direction arrow. But one of the things that became very obvious to me during my meditation retreat, because it was what I was focused on for 10 days straight, <laughs> was that it's a two-way arrow. That your body can tell, that your brain is, is trying to pick up cues from your body as much as your body is responding to what's going on in your brain. So, yeah, so if you... Seriously, if you're grumpy, just forcing yourself to smile can actually boost your mood. And this has been proven scientifically by putting, like you said, with people putting, they, they force them to hold a pencil in their teeth during, you know, watching <laughs> a movie or something. And people enjoyed the movie more if they were forced to smile by holding a pencil in their teeth. Just because your body, your brain says, I'm smiling, I must be happy. <laughs> and, and, and actually, that's incredibly powerful because that means that you have some control over your feelings, not a ton, but to some extent, if you just wallow in your grumpiness and let your body follow, it will maintain that state. It will maintain that inertia, but you have the ability, if you, if you wish, to do something different, to exercise or to smile or to hug someone. And all those things send signals back to your brain that say, actually, things are kind of okay. Yeah, exactly. Like if if I'm slumped over, I'm de you know feeling depressed. I'm really unhappy. And maybe if I just stand up a little straighter, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to feel 
a million bucks. So I'm not going to be jumping around with joy, but if I can just stand up a little straighter, maybe don't slump so much. Maybe, maybe I'm going to feel slightly okay. Maybe I'm going to feel like things are okay. Yeah. And your brain definitely picks up on the change. They're like, oh, things are moving up. Yep. You know, the, the change in, in circumstance is almost more important than the absolute level of pain or discomfort or happiness. You know, your, body's, your brain is very receptive to that, that delta. So, yeah, cool. So you learned this. Yeah, pretty much. And since we're talking about meditation retreats, actually, I wanted to bring up an experience I had. I also went on a meditation retreat. This was during my time I was learning more about mindfulness. And so at the time at my university, I, I sought out some help from the university counseling, which university counseling isn't always great, but it is quite often free, certainly in the UK. So I just thought I'm going to put my name down. It hasn't worked in the past, but I'm just going to do it. And this particular counselor completely changed my life she just it was only i think we only had three sessions together it was incredible she just she knew exactly what i needed to hear and i was ready to hear it and one of the exercises she got me to do was because i told her i was going to this meditation retreat and she said so talking about that those two traumatic experiences in the past that i had mm -hmm. as a child and I mean, I couldn't even talk about that without completely bursting into tears. And I would try not to think about it at all, but it was kind of one of those things that was always sort of in the back of my mind. Yeah. Well, during the meditation retreat, she, she suggested if I felt safe and comfortable to do it, was while I'm in meditation, so kind of breathing slowly, could I go back and visit those events? But could I do it as an adult? Mm -hmm. So I watch those events unfold in front of me as an adult. And then think about what I would say to the little child, to my previous self. What would I say? And it was completely amazing, to be honest, because when it got too much, when going back to that event was too difficult, I could just pause. It's like a videotape. Mm. I could pause. I could come back to my breathing. And I was back in the meditation room. Mm. And you're fine there. And I'm fine. And I'm safe. And like right. tears are streaming down my face, but it's okay. And then mm. I can go back in. I can press play on the video. And then I can go in and say, you know, I, I literally in my, I'm visualizing this. I picked up my like six-year-old self and I said, it's okay. She didn't mean what she said. You know, she's in, she's got her own problems at the moment and this is nothing to do with you. Those problems nothing to do with you mm. and it was just an extraordinary experience for me wow. really sounds like it it changed my my experience of those events because i could now think about them without shying away and blocking them out and crying and i could deal with what happened in my past i could accept things that happened to me but I wouldn't let them define me from now on. Wow. Amazing. I'm happy for you. Yeah, I've been on quite a journey. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you got into mindfulness through this one book. And it sounds like you got you went pretty deep because you ended up at a med meditation retreat. 
oh yeah, so I'm all or nothing, basically. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm going to hit that hard. I'm going to go all the way. Well, I was at well, uh, my end well, point. Well, you decided that. Yeah. Yeah, you had decided that you were going to 100% dedicate yourself to getting better. So you did. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Amazing. So it, it started out with accepting that your body is there to teach you and help you and not broken or flawed. Yeah. And I, and then you said that initially one of your big things that you wanted to overcome was the binging, the binge eating. So how did that go? So after the counseling sessions finished, because it was only like three, I found out that there was on my, you know, at my university, there was a, tr- there was a lot, there's a lot of research going on there and there's actually a mood disorders center. So I was basically in the right place at the right time because they had one of the first mindfulness-based cognitive therapy sessions at my university, right there on my doorstep. And I was like, damn, <laughs> I'm in the right place. That's awesome. So I went to my doctor and he like wrote a letter and mm-hmm. I went on this course. Again, this was all free. Like It's amazing. In the UK, we have the NHS, National Health Service. It's completely free. And I'm just completely grateful for all of that stuff because... I would not have been able to afford this as a PhD student. Yeah. And it's it's been totally, it's changed my life. So it's amazing. I think even in the US, I mean, at least at UCSF where I did my PhD, I, I had free access to that sort of healthcare as well, which was great. It was just part, I mean, I don't, it wasn't free. It was part of my tuition and everything, but I didn't have to pay for any of it out of pocket. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So that's, yeah. that is. I mean, good. I don't know if all universities are like that, but it's a public university in California. So. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't trying to hate on the U.S. or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want people to know that, that 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 might be a resource where you are. It's worth it's worth going in and talking to someone because yeah, I went in. I was having sleeping problems, and I went in, and actually they introduced me to mindfulness as well mm. because they're like, well, we can give you Ambien, but obviously you don't want to be on Ambien forever. Yeah. So we also offer these mindfulness counseling sessions, and I and, you know I had a few sessions with this wonderful woman who actually ended up being at the meditation retreat I was at. Huh. I saw her there and I was like, I haven't seen you in forever. You were the first one to give me a guided meditation. That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, so the, yeah, so there are there are resources like that as well in the US. So I went on this eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course. And that also was just life-changing for me because that was about dealing with depression. Hmm. And one of the things, firstly, one of the things I noticed was that out of everyone in the room, I was by far the youngest. So all of these people, hmm. some of them are like 60 plus years old, and they had been dealing with depression their entire lives. And I was just, I just felt so grateful to be finding the answers in, yeah. in my 20s. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was amazing. And the course taught me even more deeply that the thoughts come and go and they're not facts and it made me also pay attention to the present moment so that sometimes like I don't think I had ever experienced actual joy and happiness in my entire life up until I was 23 and when I wow yeah I mean I was in a bad way um yeah. but, but when I was going through all this mindfulness stuff I when you get really deep into it, you can, the present moment is actually beautiful. When you're in that sort of perfect, I don't need to be striving for anything. I don't need to worry about the past or the future. I'm just going to be here right now. 
it's actually amazing. So, Isn't it? It really is. And like until then, I had never felt joy. But being able to be aware of those moments enabled me to be aware of the times when I was happy. So that when I became sad or depressed again, I could actually call back and to those moments to say, you know what, I have been happy before. Because one of those things about depression is like, you get caught in this cycle and you're like, I've never been happy, I'm worthless, life is awful because I don't even remember being happy. And one of the things that mindfulness taught me was that there are moments of joy in life and I'm present for them. So that when I was depressed again, I would just, I could actually come back and think, actually, you know what? These thoughts that I'm telling myself right now that I'm never happy, that's not actually true. Mm. Because I remember being happy now. Wow. Is there another example, too, of how your mind tells you these jumps stories, to yeah. stories <laughs> that may, have, may seem true and they feel very real, but, yeah. and actually those stories can cloud your experience of real life. Absolutely. And I think learning to be in the present moment, yeah, it made me realize that these thoughts, they come and go all the time. They're not, you know, we're always telling ourselves stories. But only when I became aware of that, of those stories, and kind of made a bit of breathing space in between those thoughts and the present moment, could I really see that they do just come and go, you know, like clouds in the Mm -hmm. sky or leaves on a stream. Yeah. It's really hard to believe that when you, when you're, when you've always your whole life, all you've known is attaching to them. Yeah. You know, when, when you're like, you know, when you're in it and you're thinking you have the thought and then, and then you believe the thought and then you follow the thought and you track the thought and you try to fix the thought or when, you know, that's in it and it makes it last. But when, and so when you're, when, when that's your experience of how thoughts are, (laughs) then it's very difficult to believe that you can just let them go, but that's a choice that you make. You can engage with them or not. You can't control the thoughts themselves, but you can control whether or not you engage with them and react to them. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't realize that when you're in it, but that's because you've Mm -hmm. never practiced trying to separate it. Exactly. It's like, it is like going to the gym, you know, this mindfulness is like a muscle. It needs to be, It'll get stronger the more you kind of exercise and do the reps. Great analogy. <laughs> I, lo- I love that analogy. I'm all about the gym. So <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I can get a gym analogy and I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> so alongside the, that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course, so that was kind of just, it was aimed at depression, but the binge eating actually did decrease just by going on that course. And the other thing I was doing was I was not, I, I changed my mindset from, I was, wasn't putting my self-worth into the, my weight anymore. So hmm. I was training for performance. So I started strength training at the gym. I started powerlifting. It was hilarious because I was just like this, this, this small girl and there were these big powerlifting guys, huge guys, like 100 <laughs> kilo plus, and they just took me under their wing, basically. I just went to the gym. I started talking to them, and, yeah, they they sort of said, you know, anyone can run and get fit within, I don't know, a couple of months. But to be really strong, that takes years 
and years of dedication and perseverance. Now, that might not be true that anyone can get super fit, like running for a couple of days, but their mentality really impressed me at the time. And I wanted to put my self-worth away from running and being tiny. And I wanted to be strong. That's all I knew. I, I was fed up of being weak and I wanted to be strong. I bet. So I bet that sounded really appealing it, to you. It sure did. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you spent so much of your life in, a, in just a position of, of weakness yeah. that I, I can imagine. And like, like, like we were saying with that, the fact that your brain takes cues from your body, like what a better way to work on a depression than to work on your body, you know, like feel strong. And from a place of power and self-actualization and not from a place of, I need to get better so that I'm worthy. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So I decided, yeah, I decided to train to be strong. And it didn't matter if I binged or whatever. I'm, there was no excuses for me. It was, I just made it the most important thing in my life. And I would just go to the gym three times a week. That was all. But I just made those. It's so important. Like I couldn't miss it. It doesn't doesn't matter what's happening in my life. I'm going. That was a big thing as well. Just having that sort of stability in my life. That thing I would definitely go to three times a week. No excuses. That was a real big thing as well. I think having that that sort of stability and structure. And I think the other thing was that I I started creating some more. So I used to be I used to do a lot of art and painting as a kid. And then I started being more, well, I started doing more maths because that's what my my degree was in. That's what my PhD was in. And I'd kind of forgotten all about drawing and art. Hmm. And one of the things my that counsellor told me in those, just those three sessions was like, maybe it's time to start drawing again. Maybe start journaling, start doing some creative journaling where you draw and you you write. And I was really scared to pick up a pencil again because it had been so long. I was like, but, you know, what if it's not very good? But you know what? No one else was going to see the picture I was going to draw. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So I just started, I started writing. And I started writing about my past and those events that happened in my past. And the more I wrote and edited, I, basically what turned into my life story The more I wrote it and edited it, it seemed like this story didn't belong to me anymore. Hmm. This story was someone else's. So for me, writing was, well, the perfect tonic, really. And drawing again was just, it's a way to get out of my brain. And I really think that creativity has the power to heal a lot of things. And I think it's really important. And it's certainly important for me. And it always was as a kid. And the fact that I put it aside was a a mistake basically a mistake that's really powerful i i love it there there is something about creativity i feel like it has an amazing power to sort of tap into that subconscious that's so hard to hear yeah and not to not to be too mystical about it or anything just just but literally we do have so many things that we hold inside as especially when a lot of the pain was set up as a child because we, we don't have the tools to interpret that. And so, but somehow art can, 
you know, somehow art can get in there and find those things, even before you do, even before you're aware of them. And in, in writing in particular also has been shown just scientifically to do exactly what you just described. So there's a scientist, I forget his first name, but his last name is Penna Baker, and he talks about how, or he's, he's done a bunch of research on how writing and journaling can help people overcome PTSD and other traumatic events for exactly the reason you described, which is that it helps put some perspective between you and the story, makes it feel less immediately threatening, and also allows you to write it and edit it to a point where it's meaningful in a, in a way that's positive to you, that you can take it as a lesson or something that you've learned in your life and move forward rather than just be, have it be something that defines who you are. And that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazingly powerful. Uh, yeah, just such a huge, important part of my life now. And in fact, so one of the first, in fact, the first time I had these thoughts to binge, what I mean is the first time I had the, the binge thoughts and managed to not binge eat because of those thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I was having all the thoughts, but I decided I'm going to draw. And I drew a, a painting a copy of a painting by it's called softly sleeping it's by an artist called daniel conway and he's a he's a digital artist and i drew the whole thing (laughs) i just like on paper i just drew it out and by the time i finished the thoughts to binge were gone and that was the first time for me that i'd ever had these thoughts and that they went away without me having to binge eat and that was Hmm. an incredibly powerful moment for me so so mm. powerful in fact that later on i got that piece of artwork tattooed on my back literally because <laughs> it reminds me now like don't ever let creativity slip away from you again you know it's it's always mm. got my back um basically <laughs> and it's healing it healed you and it healed me wow so mindfulness and creativity and also Getting out of this kind of diet mentality where everything has to be perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. I think mindful eating, and I love your course on mindful eating, by the way. I think that is fantastic. Yeah, oh, thank you. And I think that goes such a long way into helping people with food issues. But I also think that there's this kind of diet mentality where, you know, if you have a piece of chocolate or something, you can think, oh, my God, I've ruined it. I've just t- totally blown everything and I'm a terrible person. And that's, that's the, you know, the what the hell effect, which yeah. you, you've also, you also mentioned in, on your website. I mean, just like give up because yeah, it's, you already, you've screwed up so bad that it's hopeless and you can start again tomorrow. That's right. So what the hell? <laughs> I may as well eat the entire universe. What the hell? But so it's having that very strict diet mentality is also detrimental because that's not what life is like anyway. Because, right. you know, there's no such thing as perfect for one thing. But also, emotional eating is actually okay. Like the whole, We have birthday cake. There's no reason to have birthday cake other than it's an emotional kind of thing. It's community. It's happiness. It's 
you know, it has no purpose as a food in and of itself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, I'm literally writing a blog post <laughs> like, this right now. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's, yeah, no, it's a response to the emotion of joy and celebration. And that's awesome. It's not like, not only is it not bad, it's great. Exactly. It's a feature, not a bug. Exactly. There we go. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I think emotional eating gets a bad rep. And it's really when we feel like we're totally out of control, which is more like binge eating, that that's the problem, really. And emotional eating is not really a problem. Right. Because that means emotions are a problem. Exactly. So we're not robots. And we're, <laughs> and we're not robots. Yeah. Exactly. And and really what you what the, what. Uh, a more healthy version of that goal, you know, because people say, oh, I don't always emotional eating is bad. And when you reframe it as, is it bad? Like, because that's moralizing it, right? Yeah. It's, it's good or bad. Well, it can be good sometimes. So then the question is, well, if it, it can be both good and bad, you know, positive and negative in your life, the question becomes, well, how do I optimize my life for the, that, those values that sometimes conflict? So you have the one value of wanting to be able to eat for joy and even wanting to eat for comfort sometimes, that can be okay too. Yeah. As long as it's not overriding your other value of health and, and feeling good and all that. So it's really about finding the balance, not just taking one and shoving it down as far as you can and stepping on it and putting it in a box and throwing it in the closet. <laughs> I, yeah, 100% agree. It's all about defining your values and then acting in a way that's going to take you towards your ideal self, basically. Yeah, love it. So drawing was your ticket out of binging. You had a binge trigger and decided to draw and it killed your binge trigger. It did. And other times playing the piano did it for me. Wow. So like creativity, definitely, as long as there's no pressure in the creativity because my problem is, and I think a lot of people who binge eat as well, it's like we want to be we want to just crush everything in our lives. We want to be the best at absolutely everything. And yeah, I might know something about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so like when you get to that point where you're drawing again or you're like you're playing piano, but it's coming from this place of pressure. You're like, okay, I'm fine. That's great. I need to improve. I need to be the best of the, in the world at this now. And that's, not healing (laughs) so i found it important to take a step back from that and just be like okay you know maybe i don't have to absolutely be the best (laughs) at everything all of the time like i can just i can just draw because i'm finding it fun and it's enjoyable and i don't have to push myself all of the time i love it right sometimes things are just enjoyable intrinsically yeah and basically you know a binge it never happens in a peaceful loving environment so if you can no kidding create that environment somehow for yourself that's gonna be that's that's the way Mm -hmm. right because that's what you actually want when you're when you're being triggered and you know you're the the reason binge binge uh, triggers occur is you're usually looking for some sort of relief or comfort exactly you're trying to make yourself feel better in that moment yeah and and if you've done it with food in the past and food is very powerful by the way as a 
is a, a it the specifically like the dopamine system that's triggered by sugar, salt, fatty foods, whatever your whatever does it for you, the reward of the food really pulls down your cortisol response, your stress response. So it actually is, it's a form of medication, but it's a particularly unhelpful one. You know, because it can be be damaging if if you're overeating all the time. And the what you especially if what you're really looking for isn't necessarily two thousand calories, <laughs> but peace of mind. Yeah. So yeah, the fact that you were able to find something that is intrinsically rewarding in that way, but upholds your values rather than pulling them back down is is incredibly amazing. That's kind of the direction you need to go in, I think. Um, having the space away from these thoughts is super helpful. You know, asking yourself if if I can let this thought go, is it possible to let this feeling go right now? And if you, that's a scary thing, by the way, to turn around and <laughs> face that thought in the, like, stare that thought in the face, because it's. Mm. When there's uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, often you kind of want to shut, shut them down or distract yourself in another way. But I found that the only way to fully get over all of these bad thoughts and feelings was to acknowledge them and accept that they are present and realize that it's actually okay. Everything I'm feeling is human and completely okay. It might not be comfortable, but it is manageable. Wow. That's so profound. I, I, I think you, you really nailed it, I think. The vast majority of our habits and patterns that are counterproductive or harmful, like binge eating or gambling or whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, that people look to for relief, what they're doing, what the goal is 90 plus percent of the time is something called experiential avoidance. We are trying to not look that uncomfortable feeling in the face mm. because it's terrifying and we're scared how we're going to react. We're, it's it's a, such a scary thing and it's something we've been avoiding for so long. And you're 100% right that the antidote to experience and people people want to do this. Well, if I, I'm triggered, I should I should ignore the trigger and find something else to do. It's like, no. <laughs> I mean that, that that can help sometimes and, and in small if it's it's a fairly small thing, sure. But when it's something big like that, it's not gonna go away forever. You know, you can't distract yourself forever and eventually the bad habit will come back. But acceptance, being willing to say, This is this is my reality right now, this is my world right now, and I can do it. I can I can have this feeling. This feeling can be there. This thought can be there, and I can look at it. And I don't I don't have to like it, but I can I can manage it and I can endure it. And what you realize in those moments is often that what we are scared of is it, we're usually you know we usually picture a big, giant, dark, hairy monster that we're avoiding, and then when we actually look at it, yeah, maybe it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but it's usually not as bad as our fear, and it usually is manageable. So, it and 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 it's and what so that that act of accepting and acknowledging 
what's present and what's real is incredibly empowering because it diminishes the power of your fear. Absolutely. I mean, the way I kind of have this analogy where it's, you know, you sort of step into a dark room and you see that there's a sort of shape in front of you and you, it's, you're a bit scared. You think it might be, there might be someone in the room with you. And then you turn on the light and you see that it's this old coat hanging on the door and you're <laughs> like, whoa, okay, that's fine. <laughs> right. But also, you know, maybe you don't need that coat anymore. So that's pretty much my, my life story for you. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm so happy for you. Give us a get, recap a little bit. I mean, I, I know because I... I read your story earlier. I cheated, <laughs> but let, let's give give us an idea now of what it's like to be you, like living your life. What is it like? Like you, you said, you stopped binging, you stopped dieting. Yeah. So my, to be honest, my life is amazing. <laughs> I've I've never been happier, and I now I'm I'm helping people who binge eat as well like this is this is now what i get to do i get to help other people because i've been through such experiences myself and really hard things to go through i know what it's like and i am driven to help others because of that mm. which i think is it makes me feel closer to other people when i can you know when we, we there's a shared experience there that's a beautiful gift yeah i just really want to help because i know what it's like and the rest of the time, I mean, not just the rest of the time, but most of the time, I'm very, very happy now. And I'm incredibly grateful that I've managed to find the answers, which is why I want to help other people do the same. That's so awesome. And, and sharing your story is, is a huge part of that, because I know that there are people listening right now that are where you were, and it can feel impossible yeah and hopeless and like you said i mean like these are the thoughts that go through somebody who's thinking through the head of someone who's thinking of ending their life and to hear that someone else has been there and was able through tools that are accessible you know self-reflection mindfulness a pencil and paper yeah things that things that are around you know the gym you know things that are accessible can turn somebody's life around so dramatically and make the suffering stop and not just yeah i mean i come i didn't just haven't just survived but i've actually thrive now and mm. back then i i never thought that was possible i mean still now i'm I'm now 29 years old and still the majority of my life I was depressed. I can still say that. But I know going mm. forwards that won't be true forever because I now have the tools I need to get back to the surface. I don't feel like I'm drowning. And if I start to go under, I know how to get back to the surface now. Yeah, I was going to ask you that actually. That's that's a great point. So it's... I do I do worry about making it seem like this there's this like rosy future where everything is perfect. Yeah. But you're saying that you you do sometimes have a trigger that'll you know that it maybe in the past would have led to a more prolonged depression episode or something like that. But you 
so it isn't that that that's gone so much as that you know how to deal with it. It's funny because for a couple of years after the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course, there were times where I slipped back into depression, definitely. But each time I recovered quicker. Hmm. So, and now I, I haven't been depressed for years. So I'm not going to say never. It's never going to happen again because I don't know. But I do know that I can deal with it a lot better now. I have ways of coping and mindfulness is still a big thing for like meditation, still huge. Mm -hmm. And there's something called a loving kindness met meditation or met meta. Meta. Yeah. So lovely. I love meta. And that's just all about being, having kindness. So the way I normally go through that meditation is thinking about wishing other people well. So people I know already and maybe strangers as well and wishing them to be happy and well. And then I can bring that back to myself and wish myself well. Like mm. I could, I could never do that in the past. I could never wish that I, I would be happy because I felt purely like I didn't deserve to be happy. I was kind of told that I didn't deserve it. And that's definitely what I believed. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, it's kind of like, what would, what would a friend say to me? Would they say, tell, tell me I'm right. worthless? I don't think so. <laughs> that's true. But in, in terms of that meditation, I'm able to kind of wish other people well and then, and then just wish it to myself. And I think that's something that's also really helpful about learning to love yourself and your body again, because I think that's really important. Mm. Well, that is amazing. Is there anything else you'd like to add for people? I'm sure they're already incredibly inspired <laughs> by your story. I guess, you know, don't give up. And I know that a lot of people will feel alone and they'll feel like they're the only people who go through what they're going through, but you're not alone. And there's, there's, Lots of people go through the same things and just don't give up. Because if I'd have decided at that Christmas time to, to end it, I mean, well, basically, if you own, if you own your story, you get to write the ending. Mm. That's what I want to say. Powerful. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you, Daria. Thanks for listening to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time.